The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Getting In College Coach Conversation. I'm talking to you today from London which is pretty exciting. I've been here on and off for um, a few months now, and I will continue to be for a few more months. I'm going to try and get some visits in, some college visits in while I'm here um, and let you know about those if I'm able to do them. Um, But more importantly today, all decisions, by the time you are listening to this, all decisions should be out by now. I suppose it's possible that some of them are going to be coming out at Um, an hour or so after this actually airs, or maybe a couple of hours after that. But I did want to congratulate or send my congratulations to seniors who are now going to be making some final decisions after all of this time about where they're actually going to spend the next four years. Um, So in office hours today, we're going to be talking about wait lists and appealing denials. Um, And if you're interested in other segments related to decisions, Definitely go back and check out our archives. We um, have recently spoken about negotiating more scholarship money, asking for a better financial aid package, um, just a few of the things that we've been covering in our recent shows. Uh, But speaking of scholarships, another segment today, we're going to talk about how you find them in April, May, and June. It's a little late, but not necessarily too late. So we're going to give you some tips on that. But first, uh, for those of you who are either trying to make a final decision, so you're trying to choose amongst your acceptances, um, or maybe you're trying to decide where you're actually going to apply, safety is going to be a big concern. And I'm really excited to welcome Jordan Draper today to our show. She is the Title IX coordinator at the College of New Jersey, and she's made her career in student affairs focusing on student conduct. So welcome to the show, Jordan. Hi, thank you. Um, So my first question for you is this. um, You're Title IX coordinator. What is that exactly? Um, so, Title IX is part of the Education Amendments of 1972, um, which protects against all forms of gender discrimination um, in any educational setting. So, that's college as well as K-12. So, kind of what a Title IX coordinator really is, and this was more well-defined during the Obama administration, is it is the person who ensures that um, students faculty or staff, anybody affiliated with an educational institution, understands their rights under that um, under that amendment. So it kind of focuses on ensuring that they understand the resources that are on campus so every person that has been violated um, deserves free and confidential resources. It also really ensures that 
um, there's education around what gender discrimination is. So under Title IX, it covers all forms of sexual violence, so sexual assault, non-consensual sexual contact. Um, it also covers sexual harassment. And then from other laws, it looks at dating, violence, and stalking as well. So kind of um, my position here is that I manage all of those cases. So any report that comes in that falls under those categories, I offer resources for, I do the investigations for, and then I also do interim measures and accommodations. So what that means is if um, somebody is sexually assaulted in their residence hall, and they live in the same building as the person that harmed them or the person that harmed them knows where they lived, we can remove them from that um, building and put them in a safer space. We can do that with classes, um, academics as well, no contact letters. So it's kind of, I, I do a lot around what makes a person feel safe on campus. Got it. Okay. So super important. And is this something that exists at every college campus across the country? Um, so every college that receives any financial um, funding from the government has to have a Title IX coordinator. Smaller colleges may have it rolled into a position along with somebody from HR or dean of students. Um, bigger co- colleges traditionally have a standalone person, but if they're receiving any type of aid from the government, then yes, they have to have it. And they have to have it. Got it. Okay. So we've invited Jordan to come on the show just for our listeners, just because This is a big issue on college campuses, and it's something that's gotten a lot of coverage in the news lately. There was the whole Rolling Stone kind of a debacle where they wrote up a whole thing about something that allegedly happened in the University of Virginia. Um, And then upon further investigation, it turned out that a lot of the facts in the article themselves were incorrect, which, of course, calls the entire thing into question. Um, But there are lots of other things going on on college campuses um, that, you know, of this nature, of this kind of sexual violence nature that, and, and you know, I never want to say anything is an epidemic because I don't know enough about it, um, but certainly it's something people are talking about and something that people are concerned about. And so there's something that comes out that's called the Cleary Report. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is all about? Sure. So um, the Cleary Report comes from the, the Cleary Act. Uh, the Cleary Act is a law that was put in place, um, I think, in the early 90s, and that stems from a student. Her name was Jean Cleary. Um, She was raped and murdered at Lehigh University back in, I believe it was 1986. And her parents basically had said that if they knew that there was crime on campus, which at that time there was a lot of crime on campus at Lehigh, that they would have never sent their daughter there. So the purpose of the Cleary Act um, is to ensure that all crime statistics are accurately reported on college campuses so that parents are informed of of what's going on on campus. Um, And there's some other components of Cleary as well, um, but the biggest one is ensuring that there's there's these Cleary reports, which colleges call them annual security reports, ASRs. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of what that is essentially is colleges are required every year to have a published list of the crimes that have happened on campus for the past three years. Um, So with Cleary, what that really talks about is murders, um, anything that falls under Title IX, so that's sexual assault, dating, violence, stalking, um, as well as weapons, alcohol, transport, drug use. So Cleary is kind of comprehensive in that sense. And Mm -hmm. um, the purpose of it, again, is kind of give people an understanding of what's happening on that campus and um, particular safety issues. 
The one thing that I would say about Cleary that I don't think is well publicized is that Cleary, those that information that's reported through Cleary is only things that are physically happening on campus or adjacent to campus. That's the only information that you're supposed to report through the Cleary Act. So what that's missing is anything that's happening off campus. So some of these bigger institutions or um, even smaller medium institutions that have fraternity and sorority housing or athletic housing that's off campus that's not paid for by the college, those numbers are not counted in Cleary. Um, and from what we're seeing trends-wise, that's where a lot of the incidents are happening. So the numbers that you're seeing might just say that there's two or three sexual assaults and one or two stalkings. Those are things that have physically happened on campus, most likely the residence halls. So everything that's happening outside of that is not reflected in those Clery statistics. So two questions. The first is, do I know you said that colleges are required to publish this. Do they are they required to put it on their websites? How does one access the Clery report for every campus? Yep. So most of the time, it's held within the campus police from that institution. So they should. If it's not under campus police, it might be under their campus security or their dean of students. Um, and it's called the annual security report for all colleges because that's what Cleary wants it to be called so that there's some name recognition there. Um, so they should be able to Google the particular institution annual security report and that should pop it up. Um, if not, I would tell them to contact the either the police or the security that works at that institution and they would have um, those numbers. Got it. Okay. And so my second question is, based on what you just said, that it's not really capturing everything, what are some other resources um, or are there other resources, statistics, reports that families could access to get a better sense for what might be going on off campus? Sure. So most institutions at this point have conducted things called climate surveys. So this was another initiative that was put out by the White House um, a few years ago under the Obama administration to get a better source of uh, kind of an, a better idea of what's happening on campus. So the um, institutions around the country have either already conducted a climate survey or probably in the process of doing so. So I think that that's probably a great resource if students and parents can access that information from an institution. And that climate survey should give um, a, a better number of, ID, uh, of reports coming on campus. So they, these are traditionally anonymous surveys that go out to either a sample or the entire institution that asks them if they've ever been a victim of sexual assault, if they know a friend that's been a victim of sexual assault, how safe do they feel on campus, um, how do they perceive that the college would handle a case that was reported. So it gives it would give a, a better idea of kind of how that campus is handling, perceiving these situations, and then what some of those true numbers are. Um, so that we, we know kind of nationally statistics that about one in five women are victims of sexual violence and one between 1 and 9 to 1 and 13 men, depending on which study you look at. And some of those climate surveys will give similar statistics. Um, but then what's actually reported, either through Cleary or through the Title IX office, is much, much less. Um, and that's mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. But the climate survey would have um, a good indication of kind of what that campus culture is like. And then some institutions, you might be able to contact that Title IX office and say, I'm just wondering what your total numbers were last year. And they would be able to give you those on campus and off campus numbers. Got it. So I, I would imagine that 
I mean, no campus is going to be crime-free. And, um, you know, statistics in a vacuum are always tricky, right? Because you, how do you, if you look at all of these, you may decide never to let your child out of the house and, you know, forget (laughs) about going to college. Like, you're not going anywhere. So how, you know, if how would you, what would you recommend that families who are really trying to ascertain, you know, they've gone to the info sessions, they've heard about all the blue lights on campus and, you know, they know there's campus safety, but what kinds, what would you be looking for as signs that a university has the right attitude towards this stuff and, um, you know, sensing, getting a better sense of how safe it's going to be for a student? Sure. Um, Well, I completely agree that no campus will ever be um, crime-free and that we're not going to be able to kind of change this culture of um, sexual violence um, in this generation, unfortunately. So some of the things that I think are probably important is every college has to have um, either one or multiple policies that look at all, uh, all forms of student behavior and student conduct. And I think by reviewing some of those policies, you'll get a better understanding of how institutions are viewing these. So there's certain definitions of what they consider to be sexual assault, what they consider to be consent, um, what does that mean that might be able to kind of help frame if that institution's values match your values as a student or a parent. Um, mm-hmm. I would also look at some of the, um, the counseling initiatives that are on campus. So does this particular institution have um, a counseling office? Do they have a, a specific counseling office that's dedicated to, uh, to victims of crimes, um, either sexual or non-sexual, and what does that look like so that you can kind of see are they trying to do um, – some care and provide some mm-hmm. care for the institution and, and what and what do those programs look like? Are they having programs on campus that highlight that these are issues? Are they teaching bystander intervention, which is a technique that seems to be the most effective um, to prevent forms of sexual violence um, and forms of other crimes, which is getting friends to understand how to step in and how to intervene because college administrators aren't going to be at at these parties and these situations where, um, you know, some of or most of the reports of sexual assault come from. So you want to make sure that you're going to a campus that looks like they're trying to be as proactive as possible in teaching some of these educational um, pieces as well as having the policies that also support their values. Right. And, and, you know, something that I, as a parent, so I'm the parent of a, of a son who is Mm -hmm. in middle school right now, you know, one of the things that I probably will have an eye out for are, you know, kind of undergrad, underground fraternity and sorority systems where they're not being monitored by the school, but they exist and everyone's kind of okay with it. You know, again, I don't want to make a blanket statement and say, if a college has that, then they're going to be more incidents because I could never say that. And I don't know statistically what, but I know that the college is going to have a little less control over that. And so that's something that I would be concerned about. Right. So just those things that in your gut feel like, gee, I don't know if if they're going to have enough oversight here for my taste, or maybe you're okay with that. I think um, one thing you said that really stuck with me is, is it aligned with your family's values? Are these things, you know, you may be someone who feels comfortable with a relatively solid policy and some, or you may be someone who wants them to have like so a super strict policy, right? So it's, right. it's not, it's a lot of different things that go into this. Um, is it, 
If you made a visit, and we have time for one more quick question. If you made a visit to a school, would you be able to meet with a Title IX coordinator to talk through these things? Is that something that you do with families? Um, I, I would, yes. Um, I don't know that all of my colleagues either have the time or what the sure. <laughs> what the context of the position looks like for them. Um, but I would meet with a parent as long as the student was there. For me, it's very important that the student's involved um, in the process since at this point they're the adult and they're the ones that are making the educated decisions through this process. Um, but I would be more than happy to do that. I do presentations at our Welcome Week um, and for any organizations that request it um, as much information as I can get out about the resources and the rights through this process, um, hopefully the better informed that, that students are when making a decision of what they want to do. Got it. So there you go, people. The College of New Jersey. <laughs> Sounds like they're taking the right attitude towards this. Jordan, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Yes, thank you. Uh, okay, we're going to be back in a few. We're going to be talking about late scholarship searches, so don't go away. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Before the break, I promised we were going to talk about 
how to do some late scholarship searches. And for those of you who are getting your decisions and trying to decide where you're going to attend, um, I will again direct you to our archives where we've done a couple of great segments recently about negotiating for more money. Um, But what happens if you've kind of done that and you have maxed that out or you've negotiated for more money, but you still need more money? Uh, Maybe you haven't thought about searching for a scholarship, uh, but now you're worried, worried that it's a little too late. It's not really too late. So um, I'm super excited to welcome my colleague, Stacey McFeeters, who is a former financial aid officer at Emerson College, among a few others. Uh, and she's going to give us some tips on some of those spring scholarship searches. Hi, Stacy. Hi, Beth. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And apparently it's a tongue twister for me today because I don't think I've said scholarship searches correctly until just then. Um, <laughs> so... It is a little late, right? I mean, let's be real. This is not exactly the prime time to be looking for scholarships if you are a senior. I would agree it's a little late, but it's not an impossibility. I think, you know, at this point, we're obviously focusing more on those outside organizations that would be awarding what we call private scholarships. And I wouldn't say you have a lot of time, but I do think that if you got started now, um, there there could definitely be some opportunities out there for you. Got it. So the bottom line here is there are still scholarships available if families haven't applied for any, or maybe if they applied for some and didn't get any or didn't get enough, um, there are a few more options still for them to to check out. There are. There are. And I think there's a couple of ways you could go about you know, starting the search at this point, or if you've already taken on a search and, and it wasn't as fruitful as you'd hoped. I'm going to suggest that families at this point focus their efforts a little more locally. And what I mean by that is if you have already taken on the search and maybe used a search engine uh, like a, a scholarships.com where you went out and did some, some searching for national programs, you could still do that, but I think you're going to find that most of those deadlines for those national programs have come and gone. So certainly as a last resort, we can come back to that as an option. But what I would really suggest for you is to get started in a more local way. And I think my first suggestion would be, would be to run, not walk, but mm-hmm. run to the high school guidance office and see what opportunities there are available um, through the high school or affiliated, uh, uh, you know, organizations affiliated with the high school. Um, I can share with you a personal anecdote. I worked with a family a few years ago and happened to be speaking with them a few days before the student spring break and said, you know, have you been to guidance yet? You know you have your senior day at the end of the year. Make sure you stop in and apply for any scholarships that you might need to. Um, student called back a few days later and said, hey, by the way, today was the deadline, the day before spring break, so I got it in, and all I had to do was fill out a form and check a bunch of boxes next to scholarships I thought I might be interested in. So I said, great, yeah. you know, we'll go forward. Senior day comes along in June, and that student, by, lo and behold, was awarded a $10,000 private oh scholarship from a, from a local organization because the student was attending a college that uh, no one from the high school had attended for a while, and there was some money sitting in an account. So wow. just one little anecdote for you. It's a good story. It's an awesome, and it's true. I guess we should probably caution people that there might not be many $10,000 scholarships lying yeah. around at this stage. That would, that would have be. been my only caution. Right, exactly. So that's the caution. But the other thing is, right, 
Um, if you're a procrastinator, I'm a little bit of a procrastinator. I will admit it. Um, you know, uh, you might think, well, I'll get to that after spring break. You know, I've got other things to worry about, like packing my bag because I'm going somewhere fun or whatever you're doing. And the message here is when it comes to this kind of thing, just the minute you think about it, make time to do it right now. Like you said, run, don't walk to your college uh, guidance office at your school. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, all right. So you've, you've done locally. I, you know, another big thing about local scholarships, certainly that I've seen and actually experienced myself personally is that, especially if you're attending the local um, public schools, I find that a lot of the local organizations are really eager to give those, that money to the public school students, just because, you know, they're enrolled in the public institution. And a lot of times, you know, they're those organizations that that's, those are the families they're serving. Um, so, you know, uh, not all the stuff is going to the kids going to the fancier, more expensive schools. A lot of it's going to go to the local kids at the public school, which um, which I actually think is is great. What Beyond local, what are some other places that families could go to look for scholarships? Great question. And I think, you know, when we say local, it can mean a lot of things. So obviously starting with the high school, knowing that there's sort of a captive opportunity there is great. But if you haven't already thought in your own world about opportunities, that's probably the next best place to go. So when I say things like that, you know, you've probably thought about checking with your employer to see if they offer a scholarship. But have you thought about checking with maybe your churches or civic organizations or grandparents' churches um, or maybe your, your, you or your, your, your own parents or students' grandparents are associated with some heritage groups, maybe um, Polish-American clubs, Italian-American clubs. Those are the types of organizations that are always looking for, for, you know, for kids to, to give money to. Um, so while it's still local, it may be things that you hadn't thought about. Things like women's book groups and um, garden clubs very often are looking to match their interests and desires with a student's interests and desires. So do a little searching locally. Um, I spoke with a family recently that shared with me that their, their local utility, I think it was their electric company, right on the bottom of their bill, said that they had local scholarships available. Um, if you haven't stopped by the courtesy desk at your grocery store to ask if they have scholarships. Those are outside-of-the-box ideas, but interestingly enough, they all came to us from people who've actually achieved them. So just a few other ideas for you. Yeah, I, right. One of the big problems sometimes with these is that they're available, but no one really knows about them. So the competition can be a lot less, right? So if you don't think to look at the bottom of your bill because you're too focused on the actual number you have to pay, <laughs> you know, you, you might not realize it and they may not get a lot of applicants. And that's the best case scenario, I think, in terms of being awarded money. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the last, you know, the last thing I would think about is if you haven't done, you know, so I think we think about doing the search through a search engine or we think about the things that we know. You know, a student wants to major in, you know, literature or engineering. So you've searched on those types of things. Just sit down at your computer, go into your favorite browser and type in interest and attributes that, you, that your, your child may have. I was speaking with a, a, a family recently who was telling me, me that his daughter is an operatic soprano who has struggled with dyslexia all of her life, and he said that he actually found a scholarship for students with dyslexia interested in studying music. Things wow. like that we wouldn't necessarily think about tying them together are really interesting opportunities. So, again, sitting in front of the TV at night, grab a couple of, you know, searches that, of things that you might be interested in and, and, you know, have at it. The other piece that's mm-hmm. really important to this conversation, though, is once you've done the searching, you've got to do the work. 
If you're doing yeah. the searching and not doing the applications and making sure you're meeting deadlines, these deadlines are going to pass you by as well. And then the later we get, the less opportunity you're obviously going to have as we continue. And the the big area, actually, for scholarship money that we're not really talking about today because it's not the focus of our segment today, but it are colleges themselves, right? So in a perfect world hint, hint, all of our listeners who have not yet applied to college. Um, if finances are going to be a big component, you're going to want to be looking at schools where you're going to look like a really great applicant and where they routinely give out merit money. And then you might be choosing from offers of money and more money, um, which could make your decision a lot easier because you'll have, a, um, well, maybe not a lot easier. It might be a lot harder because you have so many good offers with lots of money attached. But um are colleges still making merit scholarship offers this late in the game, in your experience? So, you know, we are still seeing that some schools are still sending their decisions. So if you haven't heard from schools yet and you want to put one last plug in for a merit scholarship, I would certainly say go for it. You know, I, I, I really follow this sort of idea of the worst they can say is no. I know mm-hmm. earlier on, Becky mentioned the whole notion of negotiation. Same idea. Mm-hmm. If you don't have an offer yet, go back and say, by the way, with my offer, might there be merit? Um, mm-hmm. And the other possibility is you can always think about going back to a school that you had been admitted to and maybe didn't receive an offer and say, you know, now that that you've got all your offers out and and students are starting to commit back or maybe you're losing students, maybe it's worth having the conversation. It's it's rare. I want to be very honest, kind of like that $10,000 private scholarship opportunity. Yep. Yep. They're few and far between, but I really feel pretty strongly about, you know, if you don't ask the question, you already know the answer. So there's always an opportunity. So absolutely. And so, you know, let's say that uh, I know a number of our listeners right now are um, our seniors um, and their parents who are, um, you know, find themselves potentially in this pickle. What would your advice be to those who are listening who are not seniors, who are juniors or younger? And, um, you know, we've done a lot of pieces on the scholarship process, but we have a little bit of time and it's always a good thing to say, well, it's not too late and these are some last minute things you can do. But hey, if you're going to plan ahead... For your younger child or you're listening and you haven't yet applied to colleges, um, what are some baseline tips uh, and uh, advice around when to get started in this process in a perfect world? Great. No, that's an awesome question. And, and you know, even for, for those who have been through the process, you may have younger, younger siblings who are going to go through it and teach them the do as I say, not as I do method. I really would suggest that for families who are serious about these processes, start as early as you can. There's nothing wrong with a, a family with a, a freshman in high school sitting down and saying, let's start thinking about what scholarship opportunities are out there. Do some searching like we've already talked about, do the national, do the local, and start to identify the opportunities that exist so that if, you know, by the time you're a senior, you, you know they're out there, you can work towards whatever those, those requirements might be. So let's say you find an extraordinarily lucrative private scholarship out there, but it's going to require, you know, X amount of work. Well, you've got some time to get that work done. Yeah. So there's no, you know, there's, there's no time like the present. So, you know, wherever you are in your process, get started. And you've already kind of touched on the other piece, which is schools are the source for the greatest amounts of of scholarship dollars. So while you're spending your time looking for private scholarships, be really strategic when thinking about the schools to which you're applying. If you're going to look like everybody else that applies to a particular school and you don't look better than the rest, think about some of those schools where you might look better than the rest and you might yield some, some really lucrative scholarships and add those to your list while you still have time. 
So, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. The safety schools, right? Those schools where your counselor is telling you you have a 90% chance or better of being admitted. Those are the schools that are going to give you money. And by the way, just because they're safeties doesn't make them bad schools. I know that that is such a tendency that people have to, to say, well, they really want me. Therefore, they must not be that good. Think more of yourself. If they really want you, it's because you're awesome. And then they must have lots of awesome kids there because they want lots of kids like you. And they're going to give you money. And you're going to graduate with a lot less debt or maybe no debt. And how are these bad things, right? If we could all shift the way we think about it, I think that would lead to a far less stressful moment like now where um, now you're scrambling because maybe you have some offers, but um, you don't have enough money. Uh, to either enroll without getting yourself in trouble or to enroll, period. And you don't want to be there. Um, but now we're getting philosophical, or I'm getting philosophical. <laughs> and you may be, you may have wanted to make a point, so I apologize if uh, there were a couple more things you wanted to add about this whole thing. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think when you think about those safety schools or those just-right schools, think about them in, in, in the ways that Beth just talked about and, and maybe make it even more attractive and say, listen, you know, you could look like everybody else and be a fish in a pond, but what about being the big fish in the pond? Go to a yeah. school where you can be a leader. If they're identifying you as somebody that they want with, with money, <laughs> then be a leader at that institution. You know, put a positive spin on it. Um, right. and, and besides, you know, what's next for you? If graduate school is in your future, how much do you really want to have to take on for undergrad? Um, but lots of great tips here. So I think that, that we've gotten given people a lot to think about. Yes, absolutely. So um, final message I would leave with everyone is, as Stacy said, run, don't walk to your guidance counselor's office. It's the very first thing you should be doing when you hear this, um, when this airs, and uh, you want to uh, get there and see what's available to you. Stacy, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. It was a pleasure. All right. Don't go away. We're going to do office hours in our next segment. And we're talking about how you handle wait lists, those terrible things, wait lists. And um, can you deny, can you deny, can you appeal your deny? Uh, And the answer is not quite so simple as yes or no. So come back and we'll talk about those things in just a few minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. 
Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everybody. It's time for Office Hours. Uh, last week in this segment, we talked about how to make a final decision. So you've got a number of acceptances in a perfect world. Um, and how do you choose between them? Um Today, we're going to tackle or tackle um, something that's maybe a little less joyous um, and here to chat with me about wait lists and appeals is Mary Sue Yoon, who is a former Barnard admissions officer and my colleague here at College Coach. Hi, Mary Sue. Hi, Beth. So wait lists and appeals. I feel like of all the questions we answer at this time of the year, I think there are three, right? Can I appeal a deny? What do I, you know, is there any chance I'm going to get off this wait list? And which of these five schools I've been accepted to has the best program? (laughs) I feel like I spend my days and weeks answering those questions right around now. So we're not going to talk about which one has the best program. Let's talk about, let's start with wait lists. Um, And what would you say is for you anyway, or how you see the difference between Wait lists at, you know, sort of some of the highly selective schools like a Barnard or, or a Penn where I worked or some of those other very selective schools and a lot of the other colleges and universities in the country um, that also have wait lists. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. I mean, I think that wait lists at the highly selective schools, you know, the truth of the matter is that those schools just simply do not have enough seats in the freshman class for all the fantastic applicants that they get. And so as an admissions reader for a lot of years, you'd read these wonderful kids who were really highly qualified um, to attend the schools that I'd worked for, but just for some reason just didn't make that final cut And because um, and, there just wasn't enough spaces. And so, um, you know, sometimes the wait list was used as a way of kind of saying, you did a great job on this application, and, and you know, there may be something that fell a little short, but we just wanted to sort of give you a pat on the back for doing a great job. Um, and so I think, yes, a wait list can be seen as you are still in the running, but in most cases it's not a situation where a student comes off the wait list. Um, and I guess, you know, we can talk a little bit more about that. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, I would second that. I think at the places, um, like, like at Penn, it, it was, mm-hmm. a lot of times it was what we would call a courtesy wait list. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sort of, I'm very on the fence. I was on the fence about that when I worked at Penn, and I'm on the fence about it now that I work with families and um, going through this process. And I've seen 
And it seems to me like no matter what happens, the reaction is the opposite of what you would hope, right? So mm-hmm. they get waitlisted and they're upset because it's a courtesy and they're not going to get in. Or they don't get waitlisted and they say, gee, couldn't I have at least been waitlisted as a courtesy? It's sort of you're right. damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Um, exactly. And yeah. so I do think, like, let's talk a little bit about um, – the wait list at the highly selective level. So mm-hmm. we've just said that a big chunk of those students are probably going to be courtesy wait lists. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some times where schools, right, they don't go to their wait list. Um, and then there are other years where they are going to go to their wait list, but maybe for only a handful of students. So what do you typically say to a student who has been waitlisted at, at, you know, one of those very selective institutions? Right. Well, the first thing I would say would be, you know, definitely look at the schools that you've already been accepted to and, you know, buy a sweatshirt for your favorite one. Get excited about the options that you do have in front of you because that's kind of the known quantity. Those are the schools that you already know that are a possibility for you to attend college, and that's the ultimate goal is that the student is attending college the next year. Um, But for the students who want to remain on the wait list, um, you know, I will say that the, the, the... the odds are not in their favor um, at some of the more highly selective schools, but there is a bit of um, a question mark on it on the admission side as well. So when I was at Barnard, my responsibilities for a while were to set the enrollment goals for the class. And so it's, it's kind of an art and a science. And so mm-hmm. it's trying to figure out, predict to how many students of your accepted students are going to actually accept that offer of admission. And so we sort of had a number that we kind of went out with of, you know, well, we, if we want to bring in a, a freshman class of 570, we're going to put out X number of admits and hope that 570 students uh, accept that offer. And so um, some years we were right on, some years we were a little bit over, and some years, you know, um, we were a little bit under. Um, you know, I particularly remember, of course, you know, you can't predict sort of world events, but um, I was working in the Barnard Admissions Office in the 2001-2002 uh, academic year, and that was, of course, the year of 9-11, and so suddenly we had less students who wanted to come to New York City, um, mm-hmm. and we had a lot of room from the wait list that year, um, uh, and, you know, it was sort of a one-year thing, and then the next year our enrollment goals were back on target. So sometimes things like that happen, or... Famously, there have been some schools that have gone 100 over their class. And, and so it's trying to sort of predict um, what that eventual enrollment target is going to be, and sometimes that's where the wait list comes into play. Um, right. To sort of make up the, that remaining part of the class, whether it's, you know, in Barnard's case, was always often around 25 or 30 students who maybe came in off the wait list out of that 570. Um, but, you know, there were some years that we were over-prescribed and some years it was more than um, the, uh, the 25 or 30. Right, right. And one big question we get a lot, and again, we're focusing right now on the highly selective, and we'll talk a little bit about how it, how it can work at other schools, but is the wait list ranked? Um, at Penn, it was not ranked. We didn't mm-hmm. have, um, and a lot of times when you get your decision from the college, it will say, you know, the wait list is not ranked, or mm-hmm. maybe the, they'll tell you it is if it is. But the way that we always looked at our wait list was to fill those holes, like you said, where we didn't get as many students accepting our offer as we thought we would. But often for us, that that was in specific areas, right? So maybe we admitted a handful of students from Nebraska and only two of them said yes and we really wanted to have a third person from Nebraska 
and we had someone on the wait list, that person might be the first mm-hmm. person we would go to. Or we didn't have enough female engineers. Or, you know, we thought we had admitted enough tuba players and the, the band needed a tuba player, but none of the tubas we admitted said yes, so we have to have one kid on the weightless playing tuba it literally can come down to that and I'm guessing it was a similar thing at Barnard it was yeah Barnard's waitlist was not ranked um and similarly we tried to fill in sort of institutional priorities when we looked at who had accepted our offer of admission and uh you know sort of fill in any gaps that we saw I remember um uh, one of the years that I was there Suddenly, we had um, the school had been offered a major grant to promote women in science. Barnard is a women's college, and we wanted to have more chemistry majors sort of at the last minute, and it was literally after all of the admitted student, um, you know, pieces had gone out because this was specifically going to be a scholarship for a student who was interested in studying chemistry. And so it was kind of a similar thing of like, okay, we need to find a couple more chemists here um, right. who would come in because there's this, you know, grant that wants to fund a chemistry uh, initiative on campus. So um, things like that did happen. And so, and I would also point out that, you know, that's way beyond the prospective student's control. So that's, yes. you know, nothing that you're going to be able to, as a prospective student, wait, wait, sitting on that wait list, be able to control what are those last minute priorities that come up and whether you fit into those boxes or not. Right. And so I'm going to bring something up that I, I don't know that we have we typically have talked about on the radio show. We might have. Um, but I also, I bring this up with a massive caution uh, sort of sign here saying mm-hmm. this does not happen very frequently. It probably is not your situation to those people who are listening. However, um, every year at pretty much most of those highly selective institutions and at a lot of schools, you do kind of a final comb through of your admits before you send the decisions out, right? You're making sure that you're filling all of those institutions or for fulfilling all those institutional priorities. And mm-hmm. you might discover in that kind of culling through that, gee, you've admitted five too many engineers, or you have um, a few too many students from one part of the country and not enough from another part of the country. So they're basically what that's called is shaping the class. And what it mm-hmm. can mean is that a student who you love, who you think is just fabulous and who has been admitted in committee, or, you know, basically is on that list to be admitted at the last minute mm-hmm. needs to come out. It's a terrible mm-hmm. thing. I kind of, on the one hand, I hate talking about it, but on the other hand, this is what we're trying to do is help people understand how this process works. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you it is super painful to do yeah. that. And I do recall every time we had to do it, the dean would say, hold on to those kids. I know this is painful. If we have movement on the wait list, yep. um, you know, you'll, you'll get to go to bat for that kid again. So I would mm-hmm. have a stack of like maybe two or three, maybe five apps yep. on my desk that I was holding on to. Um, similar thing at, at Barnard, would you say? Yes, absolutely. And um, and it was often those kids that, you know, maybe were a little bit low on an SAT score or a little bit, you know, just something that was just made them just on the cusp of being admitted. Um, but they were often students that you really, as an admissions reader, had fought for and fell in love with because of a fantastic application. And so it was heartbreaking. I think sometimes 
uh, folks will think that admissions officers are sort of this cold, heartless group of people who are deciding your child's future. And it's actually, my husband can tell you, not at all true. I'd be sitting there sort of crying over applications and saying, this is a fantastic kid. We must take this student. And um, so sometimes it's those heartbreakers are the ones that you have to pull back. But when the dean says, yeah, now, okay, give me two that we can put back into admit after, you know, from the wait list, those would be the first students that you'd be so excited to call. And unfortunately for the admissions officer, sometimes that student had already moved on to another college that they'd been admitted to, and you're like, oh, we lost them because we loved that student so much. But that's sort of, you know, that's the consequence of having to pull back um, on those students and kind of take out sometimes some of those favorites. So I will say that it was very similar at Barnard, and we often had our stack of if we go to the wait list, these are our first couple that we're going to take um, because we love them so much and wanted them to see them in our university or college. Right. And I will direct people to our archives because one thing I know we've talked about before is kind of, you know, how to handle the wait list. And, and, um, and I want to make sure we leave time to talk about the appeals process. But mm-hmm. um but let me talk, so if you're looking for more information about the waitlist, I would direct people to the, um, to the website, um, to our archives, and also send in your questions because we're going to be doing a show with, we're going to be answering your admissions and financial aid questions, and I'd love it to be focused on this group of seniors trying to make a decision. But before we do that, so we've talked about waitlists at the highly selective level. What about at other colleges? So there are, there are schools out there where actually the waitlist is a really active thing. Any information? Mm-hmm that you could share with our listeners about about how the process works at at schools like that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like for for sort of, I'll sort of generalize and say sort of a larger public university that's going to be more numbers-based in their admissions process anyway, there may be an automatic band of students that sort of fall on the wait list, and they may be even schools that have uh, rolling admission, meaning that they won't have a set deadline and they'll be admitted, admitting students all sort of throughout the year. Um, and so for those types of schools, um, being, being put on the wait list might be a sheer factor of the students' numbers being a little bit lower than sort of their admit bar for that year. But they may have a, you know, a big plan to go to that wait list and to take lots of students off it. It, I think it tends to be, I'm generalizing sort of to the larger public universities because whereas Barnard had a freshman class of, you know, around 570, 600 students, if you talk about, um, you know, a place like University of Connecticut, they're going to have several thousand students in their freshman class. And so they're going to have more likely that they're bringing in from the wait list um, at sort of numbers-wise, you know, it might just not be right. 30 students, but it might be hundreds of students that are coming in off the wait list, and it may be a sheer factor of, uh, okay, let's put out the first batch and see which admitted students accept our offer, and then we'll sort of keep looking as the year goes on and see, okay, who do we have from um, the group that didn't quite make the academic cutoff but is very close that we can bring in off the wait list, and sometimes those wait list offers could actually even come in um, even a little earlier than the traditional kind of May to June timeframe that it would be for the highly selective 
Right. And so bottom line here is I would advise people fall in love with the options you have. Maybe you stay on the wait list at your top, top choice if that's the one that waitlisted you. But I don't advise necessarily staying on the wait list at multiple places. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just be prepared uh, because there is a great likelihood that you might not get in off the wait list, but you do never know. So you know, I, I wouldn't say don't try. Very yeah. quickly, literally, we have 30 seconds. Um, mm-hmm. Appealing a denial. I've left it to yep. the end because there isn't a whole lot to say here. In general, my take is a deny is a deny, and mm-hmm. you are unlikely to get that decision changed. Any ad- advice about that, Mary Sue? Yeah, um, we had no appeals at the schools that I worked at, but I can say that, you know, the only times when I've worked with clients now that have had successful appeals is is a very, very rare situation where the college admissions office actually got false information about the student. Like a uh, guidance counselor didn't send a transcript or the the wrong SAT scores never quite made it there. Um, uh, Sorry, the right SAT scores didn't make it. So, you know, those are really rare situations. um, And that might be a time when appeal would work is if like, oh, wait, your, your school didn't send your transcript, so they put you through as a design because they didn't have full information, um, that would be a place for a dep- to, uh, appeal, but that's about it. Right. All right. So bottom line on the appeals process is that um, it's unlikely to be successful. And in fact, most schools don't allow you to appeal. If they do, they will typically let you know um, on their website what their appeals process is. Well, thanks so much to Mary Sue and to all my guests today. Um, I did want to let you all know that we have a great blog series that's going to be debuting shortly on the Huffington Post. I think it's great. I'm writing it. So of course I do. Um, But it's going to be related to how you can evaluate your chances um, at the Ivies and the similarly highly selective institutions. If you go to the Huffington Post and search for my name, Elizabeth Heaton, um, you should find it. Please read it, share it. Um, it's also going to be available on a link from our own blog at blog.getintocollege.com. Uh, next week's show, Ian's going to be hosting. We're going to continue the theme about making final decisions. This time, it's going to be based on finances. Um, we're also going to be talking about the impact of sports on campus culture and uh, resources for you to do college admissions research. Uh, In two weeks, we're going to be answering your admissions and finance questions, and I would love to focus on seniors who are making final decisions. Um, So email us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. We have lots of great stuff in our archives um, and lots of free ways to interact with College Coach, including Pinterest and LinkedIn. Um, And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 